the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Hey, Lindsay. Hello, Justin. Man, this episode, it's about time that we talked about David Lynch. It is. I know like all last season we were like, man, we should do a David Lynch thing and mm-hmm. it just never seemed to fit and now now it's here. And, and I'm glad we chose Eraserhead as the feature. We're yes. going to do some David Lynch movies for our picks of the week. but This is kind of a David Lynch episode. Yeah. Yeah. Might get weird. Who knows, man? Well, we chose our main feature, Eraserhead, uh, mainly because trying to pick a David Lynch movie, we wanted one that had a substantial reputation. It's also, I think, considered probably like one of the most successful midnight cult movies of all time. It is the most well-made student film. Yeah, <laughs> around. Yeah. So we'll. Uh, there's a lot to talk about. We're going to get into the making of Eraserhead, which has a very interesting behind-the-scenes story. Uh, Long saga. Yeah, we'll talk about David Lynch, a little bit about his career, and then we've got a lot to unpack with just the movie of Eraser, Eraserhead itself. The the themes, plot. Yeah, there's just this is a great discussion movie. Yeah, yeah, because this is a very, I think it's like a very interpretive movie, so we'll kind of give our, you know, how, how we, we take the movie and then also like kind of what we've read David Lynch his insights yeah. on his own work. And if you know anything about David Lynch, I think some people can you know be real crazy and like fanatic love of him um and then there are some people that think I just don't get him. I don't get Lynch movies. But I think that I don't know, sometimes you just have to not think too hard about David Lynch films because sometimes they are straightforward stories. And sometimes they are completely abstract. And Eraserhead is where I think it's a good spot or a good jumping off point to learn about his abstract um, way of storytelling. And and we're both about middle ground with David yeah. Lynch. We both kind of feel the same way. I very much admire and respect David Lynch as a artist and filmmaker, but I'm not always completely there for some of his films. And I'm certainly... Um, David Lynch is, uh, is most of his films are ones I kind of have to be in the mood for. It's not uh, not something uh, will be my first <laughs> pick to like throw on if if we're all gathering around to watch a movie. Yeah, in doing all of this research, one of the ones one of his films I was blown away by was The Elephant Man. I hadn't seen that since I was a kid, and man, what a great movie! Movie's it's just... very it's very it's an excellent film, but it is. It's uh very heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. It's a, it's a tough it's a tough one to if, if get there's through. If there's anything we can say about David Lynch films, it's that there's so much to talk about with all of them. They're interpretive, even if they are straightforward stories. But that is one reason why Eraserhead is a great discussion topic, is because whatever your interpretation is of the movie is correct. Yeah. So. 
with that, then uh, we'll talk about Eraserhead. We'll go into our picks of the week. What's your pick of the week? This uh, time my around? pick of the week is Straight Story. David Lynch's only G-rated film, and it's also a Disney, Disney. film. Yeah, it's an it's an unusual film. It's it's it seems very straight ahead, but it is unusual, and the pacing is unusual. Um, I'll get into it, but yeah. um, it's a, it's a great film. And rewatching it for the this episode, uh, I really watching it as a like as an older individual now uh, yeah. really cut deep. It is an adult movie. It, uh, it's not going to hold a youngster's uh, attention. But, no way. Yeah. But I don't know. I I weep like a baby more than a few yeah, times in this yeah. one. There's a there's some good behind the scenes story about that. I'll I'll touch on that. A oh, little I can't bit. wait. What was your pick of the week? It is one of his more well known films, and that being Blue Velvet from '86. It had been a long time since I had watched Blue Velvet. And I would always say that Mulholland Drive was my favorite Lynch film, and now Blue Velvet is yeah. uh, contending right up there with it. I got to rewatch Blue Velvet. It's been a while. Um, Blue Velvet was always one of these movies that uh, when I was probably like maybe like 14, like I had in my room is where I had all my VHS movies, mm-hmm. you know, my collection. But my mom had like a really small set of of her own collection but yeah. that were in the living room yeah and i remember uh blue velvet was one of those and i had never even heard of it and i i put it in i'm about 10 or 15 minutes into it i'm just like oh <laughs> what is this <laughs> you know she's like one of my mom's weird movies you know and then just like turned it off it it but is i one... saw it later again in college and like i think a college is where i like gotten more of a pre- appreciation for david lynch in my 20s but i haven't seen blue velvet in probably like 10 years or so it's a great one to revisit. I, I can't wait to talk about that and I and the straight story. I can't wait for you to talk about that one too. And then of course we'll go into the Murray moment. It's not David Lynch related. Not no spoiler alert here. Okay. But uh I don't eh. don't tell me anything about it. Oh crap, I already messed it up. It's the first time I've ever spoiled it, isn't I know. it? No, I don't even want to hear it. But I guess I have to because it's part of our format. <laughs> um <laughs> But before we get into our first, man, clips for this are going to be weird because there's almost no dialogue. (laughs) It's just going to be a, uh, get ready to hear the sound of this clip. (laughs) Um, But before we get into our first sound clip from Eraserhead. It's just going to be deafening noise for 30 seconds. Um, can Can you tell us if you can somehow summon like what this, what a narrative thread of this movie is? story the narrative thread that david lynch always is interested to hear how people yeah. are going to describe a racer head of course sure so take a swing at it here Lindsay. let's see what let's see what i can do and david lynch would hear this and go yeah that sounds about right because any answer is correct so Eraserhead, this film is certainly a surrealist, dreamlike nightmare concerning fatherhood, relationships, an abnormal newborn situation, and what if my life were different motif, and the anxiety, fear, worry, stress that can come from all of that. While it may feel out there at some moments, with Eraserhead, it is important to look deeper and see that this story is actually relatable. All the factors are important in this movie. The sound, the music, the silence, the density of the air and the visuals. Everything in Eraserhead is very intentional. Like I was saying, probably the most uh, professionally and thoughtfully artistically executed student film that anyone might ever see. 
there's a lot more as far as like characters you can go into, but it, it's kind of pointless when trying to sum up what this movie is about. But there certainly is some of the strangest and most bizarre characters you've ever seen in a film. Yeah. We're going to get into I it. That was a good, I thought that was a good, good go at it. So are we going to, for Halloween, are you dressing up as um, as Henry from Eraserhead? I'm, I'm going for it. After 20 years of people telling me I should be yeah. Eraserhead for Halloween, I'm finally going to do it. And, and after funny, 20 years, I'm going to go as the radiator lady. You know, what, what's, been... funny, what's funny, what's <laughs> funny, after all the, every year, if someone's like, you look just like you the radiator just lady. Like the ra- from, your cheeks are completely like the radiator lady. Radiator lady? Eraserhead? Yeah. <laughs> um, like, sing me a song. Uh uh it's funny i was you know watching this for the episode and uh uh, my wife mary was coming down to uh take something to the basement and uh Uh she uh, you know walked past and i kind of backed up and was looking to race her and she's like why haven't you been him for halloween (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's i mean it's true justin it's about time yeah. I'm not gonna go as Mary, his his partner, but yeah, I'll I'll hit you up with some radiator lady. <laughs> All right, it's time to get into the meat of this. All right, we'll go into a uh, weird soundscape clip of Eraserhead, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about this movie. Thirty seconds of deafening noise. Go. I thought I heard a stranger. We've got chicken tonight. Strangest damn things. They're man-made. Little damn things. Smaller than my fist. But they're new. I'm Bill. Hello. I'm Henry. Henry's at Lapel's factory. Well, Pritton's your business, huh? Plummet's mine. Thirty years. I've seen this neighborhood change from pastures to the hellhole it is now. I put every damn pipe in this neighborhood. Now people think pipes grow in their home, but they sure as hell don't. Look at my knee. Look at my knee. Are you hungry? So with Eraserhead, this is a very minimal film in a lot of ways. Visually very, I think... It's very rich. Very yes. rich, yeah, but it's minimal. It's it's not particularly long. There's not a lot of dialogue. It's a very quiet film. Like we said before, it's a very visual film, um, visual storytelling, um, very dream dreamlike. But we wanted to talk a little bit first about the infancy of Eraserhead and, and how... It came to be. Yeah. Um, David Lynch was a student at the American Film Institute, AFI, which is pretty prestigious now. It is a very uh, well-known institution for filmmakers. But at the time David Lynch was going there, which was the early 70s, it was you know fairly new. They still had a lot of funding. It, it's in Beverly Hills and yeah. Los Angeles. It's well-connected to the film industry. And still very much, I think they were only allowing maybe like 15 people into at a time. Yeah, it was very, very tough to get into. Yeah, Yeah. very selective. Um, But David Lynch got in and he had already made, you know, he had made some student films. He had made some shorts, um, but he wanted to do a feature. And he was already looked at as like a very promising filmmaker from his short films that he had made. And he wanted to do... Eraserhead, but he saw it as a bigger film 
even though it wasn't like a feature length script. I think he had like maybe it was like 20, 22 like 20 pages. pages or something. Yeah. You know, when you hear David Lynch talk about what he had access to through the Institute, yeah, uh, it was pretty amazing. I mean, he got like, you know, in Beverly Hills, they had these, they had like a an old horse stable that they turned that basically turned into his own studio. Uh, they had housing for everybody there. Like they had like it was I think it was something like some crazy like five or ten acres lot. Yeah, um, it was just basically a part that they a part of the property that was there that no one else was using and they kind of everyone with a racer had just kind of set up camp and then he was friends with uh the guy the head of the sound department at AFI and he was working on the movie so he just kind of had access yeah, to and all they the gave, sound and they equipment. they gave them all this they gave them all this equipment to cameras yeah. and you know when i think of low budget filmmaking and student filmmaking and you know and i worked in that field for a very small amount of time you know every everybody has that story of like you know, yeah, we're shooting and then whatever location you're at or wherever you're at, they're like, all right, you guys are done. This, you have to get out. You got it. You're getting kicked out. Like you're rarely in a situation where you're shooting in someone's house and I'm like, all right, well, my wife's coming home or my husband's coming home or the kids are coming home. We need to get you out. Very rarely do you hear a story of like, no, we, we were given this <laughs> huge lot of land in this big room that cast and crew could we had a room for a food we had room for the equipment we had a room to do costumes and nobody kicked us out like we just had full access 24 7 to this place for like four years and to be fair too when he when david lynch joined the american film institute for what was it center for advanced studies is the name he, he went through a year of schooling and making and and making student films and then um, he had one one script before Eraserhead, which was called Gardenbacks. And when it came around to his second year, for some reason, and I haven't, I wasn't able to figure this out, but he was put into first year classes or associated with other first year students. And David Lynch basically was like, "Well, that's wrong, so I'm piecing out of here," and I quit. And AFI. We're like, we did something wrong. Please come back. What can we do to make you come back? And he was like, screw this movie, this garden backs thing, because you guys wanted me to expound upon it. And I think it's complete crap now. I want to make a racer head. That's what I want to do. And he just basically wasn't questioned. But there were some people that weren't exactly all for it. But enough people were behind him. And then he had enough of a crew just happened into it seemed like everything as far as casting crew the fact that he was able to set up camp for five years in these stables on afi's campus i mean everything just kind of fell into place and it's it's pretty amazing just the though david lynch like you know their their budget was very limited and i mean he said that there were after about two or three years they were yeah. he and he he tried to pay everybody too. This was another situation he was, where yeah. he was paying people as much as he could, and but they said that you know they did they did reach financial circumstances where finances were very very tight, and, which you know is a very that's a very common thing for student films, low budget yeah. filmmakers. But this was like two or three years into the process, <laughs> you know, and you know, but this was a very dedicated group of people, you know, that said, we'll make the movie when we can. We'll come back to this place where we have everything set up where they could build sets and let them sit for a year. And so they were able to really get this great production value on very little money. But they said two or three years in, it was like David Lynch had been working on it and they had all been dedicated for so long Mm -hmm. when he couldn't really pay them money 
they were like, well, it's okay. You know, you don't have to pay us. Like, let's keep working on film. And he said, I don't even have money for film anymore. And they said it got to a point where people, either the cast or the crew would show up and they said it was a thing where you, someone would go by Kodak, pick up just enough film to shoot for the day. And they'd be like, okay, what can we shoot today? And so it really became such a group effort that toward the end of filming David Lynch, and this was before people would do points, you know, uh, you know, it's like now it's such a common thing. It's just like, Oh, we can't pay you for the independent film, but the actor will get two points in the movie. And if we happen to sell it at a film festival, you get residuals. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody was doing that in the early seventies, but David Lynch sat day. He took everybody out to dinner and, you know, on napkins wrote out points on the movie. And a lot of the actors, you know, they said to this day, they still get, checks for once a year for residuals from Eraserhead, which I think is kind of crazy. And it's something that, you know, David Lynch didn't have to do, but this, you could tell this was like a very group family effort. And I know that sounds like a cliche for, for that to be like, we all felt like a family, but they really were. And David Lynch was basically a paper boy. And like, that was like the way that he was making money. And Jack Nance was helping out with that. And since they were shooting around the clock a lot at night, everybody kind of would help along that paper route and made it happen faster so they could get back to shooting and still have some type of income coming in in order to make this happen. And like one of the actors was uh, worked at a restaurant and would bring food back to everybody from there. And they just kind of all worked together. And over the span of, I mean, I know that there were people that hung on for all of those years. Some weren't able to just financially and had to tap out, but man, the the feeling of community and family in a Razorhead is uh, it enriches this film even more to know that. And it's really telling of David Lynch's like his uh, loyalty is it to the people that helped him when he was an unknown filmmaker. That you know, once he became a big Hollywood filmmaker, a lot of the people that worked for him on Eraserhead he used throughout his career on these yeah. big budget films that he did for Hollywood, which I think is pretty cool. Some of you might be familiar with Twin Peaks and uh, the Log Lady from Twin Peaks. And the Log Lady actually originated during Eraserhead. Yeah. And the woman that was the Log Lady worked on Eraserhead. And Frederick Elms, who shot uh, Eraserhead, went on to shoot like at least two more of Lynch's films. It probably, there's still some truth to this, but especially when David Lynch was starting, the idea of working with the people that you trust and that you have before and that you trust their abilities and who they are and their artistry. David Lynch definitely has always, has always done that. Well, let's get into some of the themes of Eraserhead and then we'll take a break, go to a clip and then we'll come back and we'll talk about kind of how we feel about Eraserhead in our own kind of interpretations of it. Lynch has said multiple times in interviews that when he was writing Eraserhead, when he was developing the story of this, he had just had a, a daughter and the doctor said that she had a club foot, which, you know, as a young father, he was very worried, you know, he, you know, oh, my child's got like some sort of disability and, mm-hmm. you know, is it going to affect her her whole life? And that very much terrified him. And he was also like fairly newly married and he had a lot of anxiety going on. And, and I think, you know, and he put a lot of that into Eraserhead. And I think a lot of that really comes across in the movie. I think mm-hmm. there is a deep theme of parenthood and being, oh, yeah. uh, you know, raising a child and, and, and dealing with that exhaustive anxiety that comes with like, you, you know, not knowing what you're doing and, and knowing that 
this human being has got to depend on you to survive. Yeah, and that that feeling too of what have I done? How have I gotten to this place but still keeping on trudging along and being terrified? Um, I, you know, I, I say terrified, but I wouldn't say that Henry, um, who's played by Jack Nance, the main character, I would never say that Henry's terrified. He's experiencing everything that's happening and just kind of like bewildered the whole time, not really knowing what's going on or what to expect. I would say Mary, his wife, is completely terrified, and I would say experiencing what we know now as as postpartum depression. Yeah, I think depression is definitely like a huge, yeah. you know, not just a theme, but just like an ever-present running existence in, in Eraserhead. But I think that, you know, there really is a, a unique in, in actual, like, real story happening here, and there's actually uh, David Lynch has found a way to express the real a misery in like anxiety of, of challenges that life will hand you. And he's done it in a way that's not super straightforward, but I think in a good way, you know, it's like, I think that if it was done in a straightforward way, it would be kind of like a boring, almost like, you know, melodramatic movie, but he's able to really capture the sensations of anxiety and dread that we sometimes feel in like this sort of visual metaphorical way versus like people talking out loud and saying what they're feeling. I think what he would call that would be like a subconscious experience of this entire movie. This is everything that we see visually is what's happening inside. The anxiety that we're feeling is manifesting, whether it is, you know, the idea to end it all and how that's manifested in this is, um, this woman that Henry sees living in the radiator that we mentioned the radiator lady who's saying, you know what? Everything's going to be fine. Basically alluding to kill yourself. I mean, yeah. she's saying that. And then we have an, another kind of offshoot of Henry thinking, what could my life have been like? Had I this not happened with this woman that lives across the hall and having kind of this, you know, kind of like a fair if if this yeah. if this would happen it's not exactly expounded upon but all of these ideas of what if my life were different yeah i think there's a strong theme of regret yeah. and a very strong theme of like life and death like what the balance is between life and death and like what the value of that is i think is like ever present throughout the film are you saying that when uh it comes to when he's with his newborn yeah yeah there's yeah. a real, yeah. real strong sense of that. Well, we'll uh, let's go to a clip and then we'll come back and we'll kind of get into our own interpretations of Racerhead. We'll also uh, get into a couple little fun facts about this movie that we uh, dug up while we were researching.
Racerhead very much has a kind of leave it up to your own interpretation kind of movie mm-hmm. um, because it is, I, I don't think this is a complete nonsensical film I mean like we said there's there's I think there's definitely some like themes and elements that that are grounded in the movie that aren't that hard to get out of it yeah but I, I but I certainly feel like with a movie this peculiar in the way it's kind of free form and so visual you can take a lot of things out of it that leaves a lot up to the imagination I think so um, I don't know. We're gonna kind of go through like what our views, you yeah. know, like what we got out of the movie. I think because it is such a abstract movie, like as soon as you set into this, well, for one, watching this with my animals, which I I've not done before, the first thing that is that sometimes puts people off uh, for watching this movie, and certainly my dogs, it did is the is the sound, and I think. David Lynch does a really good job of setting that up to make us feel uneasy. Like Justin, you and I talked before about how we see Henry, you know, walk for quite a distance in the beginning. And there is this kind of like deafening industrial sound and we hear that, but we don't hear like his footsteps. So I think when we start out like that, when we start out hearing the things we don't normally hear, our world or our reality is kind of, flipped on end and without even knowing it um, before really we get into any dialogue you have to be ready to kind of accept the not alternate universe but just like distorted reality that is this dreamlike setting and we don't say you know I think saying dreamlike setting you get the idea that there's going to be some type of like visual like whooshes of you know mist or something I don't know whatever whatever someone does to signify a dream but there's there's not any of that in this well and and I'll start here with kind of like what I get from certain elements of the movie because there are at least three sections of this film that can very much be construed as like a dreamlike sequence yeah and it's it's him waking up yeah and it, and, and, and it and I feel like it doesn't it doesn't happen like in a normal sense of like how we've seen dreamlike sequences or fantasy sequences, especially in like 80s films. To me, these aren't dream sequences. To me, uh, especially when he's like staring at the radiator and we go through the radiator into mm-hmm. the radiator girl singing the songs, I take these as like his subconscious. I take yes. it as uh, we're inside his head. This is this is kind of interpretation of what he's thinking. And it is dreamlike because the brain works and there's like this weird subconscious and all things are mixed together but I've always taken those sequences to be like his subconscious not so much like this kind of like just dream Mm -hmm. you know arbitrary bits of information happening I feel like it's very connected to what he's thinking and I think that happens for everyone that sometimes you get so you know whether or not you're going through something stressful or if it's just run-of-the-mill day and you get lost in your thoughts that is what happens for me when I watched um, I mean a lot of this movie specifically like these like dreamlike sequences that we talk about and the the nightmarish reality that is the whole movie therefore I I think you can't um, I mean you can say whatever you want but the whole thing is not a dream it's not like at the end Henry like wakes up and it's all a dream whoosh it's all gone 
it is a different world. And I think you're set up from the beginning to know that things are off, even with how Henry interacts with Mary, how he inter- how everyone interacts, her parents, how they interact with him. It's all bizarre and strange. People might be more familiar with Mulholland Drive and how Mulholland Drive starts out. And it's so everything seems fake and wrong and just something's not right. It's the same thing with this. It's just different, different tone, different vibe, but it's, we, we know that something is off, but that is what grounds us. What I enjoy about this movie right away in, and I don't mean all this sort of like surrealism and the streamlike stuff that happens in this movie doesn't bother me. And it actually makes me appreciate the movie even more because watching this the last time, it made me really realize how reliant I am upon like they're clearly being a protagonist <laughs> or an antagonist yeah. in a film that I watch and you don't have that. Like there's nothing that immediately dictates like this is a bad character, this is a good character, um Yes. This is their internal conflict. Like here it doesn't really set up any of that. It basically just sets up this sort of like crazy world that this character it, all these characters are inhabiting um but we're not really like sure what's going on but i don't feel like by losing all that you you lose any sense of of like feeling about the characters because i think there is a large sense of humanity in this film i actually think that there's a couple scenes especially oh, yeah. with uh the henry character um and the baby that he's taking care of his child it's very heartbreaking and it's also very like gut wrenching. And those are like real visceral scenes. And I do feel like if this was just completely nonsensical and, and we didn't like visually establish like some sort of sense of humanity, like it wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that this movie functions without there being a clear indicator of like who's good, who's bad. Here's like a plot point. Here's, there's no devices to kind of, push us along so you do have to like kind of think on your own and kind of make kind of think a little bit about what's going on and and I do think that there are clues and there are things that help but I can see how this would be a very somewhat confusing and maybe like unpleasant movie to deal with at certain times and I definitely think it's a movie that it's taken me a long time to appreciate but now I really really enjoy it for what it is isn't it funny that you can compare something like a razor head that you have to, I don't want to say work to understand, but that it engages you to be involved in the film and actually think about it versus each plot point being handed to you. And it's also not like it just functions like, Oh, that's how I would feel if I were in that situation. It's not just a sympathetic feeling, even though you do empathize with how every character reacts in this movie. And even that's interesting too. Like you were saying, there's not a good or a bad person. It's just, you're experiencing this along with everyone else. Yeah. It's just, I I love that you kind of do have to, you have to pay attention. And, and, And that's the thing is like, and I think that there's scenes in here too, that are like, that can be universally understood, you know I mean? Yeah. Of, of us being you know, even though things happen that, that seem sort of strange and like out of whack, um, the general idea of, of things that can happen to an individual are there. Um, I'll take, for example, the scene where Henry comes over to it. I, I still am unclear if it's like his wife or it's his girlfriend that they have the baby with, but 
him going over yeah. to her parents' house, they come off as like genuinely strange and it's a very odd and awkward situation, but I can relate to it of, of going over to an in-law's house when you're first meeting someone, you know, and we've seen this scene tons and tons of times in other movies, this sort of like awkwardness of, of, of a spouse or a loved mm-hmm. one meeting someone's parents for the first time and that weirdness that happens, you know, and in a lot of times that's played for laughs in a movie, like meet the parents, you know, but in this movie it's so weird. And I think you could look at it and say, Oh, this was just so strange. Like everybody's acting weird and the chicken starts moving on the, on the plate, but underneath everything, you know, underneath all that strangeness is just sort just sort of like simple story of a guy meeting his girlfriend's parents and how that can be very anxiety driven and, and very, very awkward. And, and everybody's kind of acting weird because it's like these first impression things and they're trying to make, you know, they're everyone's kind of nervous because it's like, well, you're dating our so-and-so and I'm, you know, want to have your good, be in your good graces. And it's, I think it really, that, that scene I can relate to and it shows a lot of that. And it's funny that it's more acceptable in something like Meet the Parents where it's played for laughs than maybe you would, you would watch this thing and be like, well, this doesn't make any sense. But it's the it's the same same motif, same it might be a different interaction, but it is the same idea that's being communicated. Justin, if there is one scene that that sticks with you or that after you are done watching Eraserhead, that is one of the biggest things that you feel like needs to be explained or interpreted, what would you think or what would that be for you? I think the ending is very, to me, is, I kind of see it as two ways. I kind of see this as a somewhat spiritual film in a way. Before we get to, and the ending is super important. Like we've, if you haven't seen Eraserhead, there's a lot that kind of like leads up to the ending. This baby that they have is, is not a normal infant or human or whatever it may be. And mom has left the scene and it's being left with Henry and Henry really doesn't know what to do. And there's, I don't know. I mean, would you say it's like a, does he, he murders the child. I I get that he kills the child and and then, and then he kills himself. That's not necessarily played in a real clear fashion, Mm -hmm. but then there are these sort of like, the song of like in heaven everything is fine which is what the and, radiator later yeah sings to and then him. he also like there's a bright light he enters like what would be you know talked about many times of like heaven you know like meeting someone at the gate and it's sort of like implied that they both the baby and him both die but suicide is always i think in religion has been considered you know a sin so would he you know is it heaven that he's going to it's it's not it's not clear, um, but I do feel like there's some sort of like religious sort of spiritual connotations happening with the ending of this. Again, that's what I get out of it. I know. And uh, some th- could say know. some could say that it's also maybe it's not as straightforward. <laughs> it's funny. It's not as straightforward as that. Not as if there's anything that's straightforward in this movie, but it could be Henry dying in some ways and giving into that he does need to be a parent but we don't really see that it could be open to many different interpretations i get the same as you do that he kills himself 
And that's maybe if the radiator lady wasn't involved and saying that super creepy. In heaven, everything is fine. Isn't that what it is? In heaven, everything is fine? Yeah. (laughs) Um, If she weren't there, it probably would be a little bit more opaque of an ending. But I I feel like I'm right there with you. I think again, it's a it's a movie that can be left up to interpretation, um, but I don't think that that belittles the experience of the film at all. I think that actually like enriches the enjoyment of like watching this movie. Having read um, interviews with David Lynch and like mm-hmm. um, discussions on the film, it does make it for a more enjoyable watch. Uh, one of my hopes for doing this episode was that just our discussion based on our discussion research if you were someone who had written off the film or maybe you watched it like 20 years ago and you're just like yeah it just seemed like total nonsensical garbage to me just kind of hearing where David Lynch was coming from like I said with being uh, a parent and like having a child that he was worried about and that was like the the seed for the the start of the film is a good jumping off point to like re-watching the film with like a a different mindset and seeing if you get something different out of it. I had the same feeling in my 20s when I watched this in a film class in college. I appreciated it aesthetically, but I was not into the the narrative or what you're supposed to be when you when you watch it even though it is a very visually striking movie, but watching this as an adult it's a whole different uh experience and man the la- I don't know, the last few times I really enjoy watching this movie even though there are plenty of unpleasant experiences contained within this film and it is a very beautifully made constructed film it's not even though like I consider this to be like the best student film ever made (laughs) um I I by no means am am saying it looks like shoddy or inexperienced because it's very exquisite looking and just you know kind of closing off here just so we can get to our picks of the week were there any other like kind of little tidbits um through your looking through things that that we could throw in before we jump off of Eraserhead. For for people that like David Lynch, it might be this this might be a factoid that you already know, but that Sissy Spacek and her husband helped finance Eraserhead and have always been uh, big supporters of of his work like s- since the late 60s and you know, she's in the straight story that you're going to talk about. Probably my 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 favorite story of this movie that I've read. Some producers that were working with David Lynch, like on his later films, uh, were talking to Stanley Kubrick. They were working with Stanley Kubrick as well, and they uh, Stanley Kubrick was talking to him. They're like, "Oh, do you want to come back to my house and watch my favorite film?" And they're like, "Yeah, sure." And so they they were telling David Lynch's story, and so they told David Lynch like. You know, we went back to Stanley Kubrick's house and he was like, I want to show you the film Eraserhead. And Stanley, and David Lynch basically said, like, <laughs> you know, he was a huge fan of Kubrick. Yeah. And there had already been, you know, Kubrick had already been established as a sort of like wonderkin, like one of the best directors of all time. And he was like, I could just, you know, die now <laughs> having done what I'd done, knowing that I made a film that he considers like reputable, which I thought that was pretty wild. And. Along the same lines, I would say with when the Elephant Man rolled around um, a few years later after Eraserhead, that was in 80, right, I believe? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, which was 
produced by Mel Brooks or it came from his production company. Um, Mel Brooks was, I mean, if you know who Mel Brooks is, he's not exactly known for dramatic works or really anything that's similar to David Lynch. They were trying to find somebody to do Elephant Man. And once he saw Eraserhead and met David Lynch, he was like, I don't know what I'm in for, but I'm really excited. And, and I don't even know what I watch, but I'm really into this and excited to, to for you to make this movie. So there's always been a lot of admiration, I feel like, from people that... From other folks that are admired that make movies, and I think that, I think that says something, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we'll um before right. Uh, actually, I forgot to say before we go to our picks of the week, we'll um kind of go talk a little bit more about David Lynch. You know, since we are we, since we are going to do two movies from him, um to kind of just follow up what you said after the Elephant Man, mm-hmm. uh, David Lynch did go on to do your pick of the week, Blue Velvet, which. Well, before that, he did Dune. Before that, he did do Dune, yes, which was uh, not a huge success. It's not one that I've no. revisited recently. I know you recently watched it, and you said that it was um, just sort of not, you couldn't quite get into it. I, I mean, if anything, hearing David Lynch talk about his experience doing Dune, if David Lynch is asked, now what is his advice to film students or any anyone of that of that sort he always says get final cut that is number one he is so adamant and he all of a sudden like flips a switch and he's very serious and it's because of dune that that uh, was not what happened and he did not get final cut and he was unhappy with with how it turned out and a kind of a crazy side story for dune was that uh, before he chose Dune to direct, he was offered to direct Return of the Jedi from George Lucas. Yeah, that's and, right. <laughs> and he told David Lynch told George Lucas that this is more of your thing than my thing. Yeah. He didn't really want to just be like sort of a, a a puppet, like working for somebody else. Yeah. Um, but ultimately did Dune and didn't get final cut on that. But after Dune, he did the movie you're doing for Pick of the Week, Blue Velvet, mm-hmm. which kind of brought him like, the biggest acclaim of his career thus far, I think yeah. between critics and audiences. And, and then he went on to produce to write, produce and direct the television series, Twin Peaks, which when I watch that show now, uh, still blows my mind that that played on like primetime television no, and right. like the or late, missing... in the late eighties. It's kind of crazy. David Lynch's brand of, I don't know, quirkiness or weirdness or just something that's like, off the beaten path it was okay for tv because it was kind of you know tempered a little bit but you anything that he had done anything that was theatrically released i mean he has way more freedom to do that than whatever you can put on tv and after twin peaks you know he did wild at heart which was one of my favorite of his it's kind of a strange little sort of has that the couple in love that go on a run and they're violent uh which movies later like Tarantino and Oliver Stone did but then uh he did um uh Lost Highway which is a very strange film on um, Mulholland Drive which brought Lost him Lost Highway freaks me out Lost There's... Highway is an odd one that's not one of my I, favorites but I like it but there are a few parts in it that like m- make me very uncomfortable and uh Mulholland Drive is probably like one of his I think most recent in it was kind of acclaimed films. Yeah. And, no, I'm sorry. Like 99. Yeah. And, and, uh, and then I'll get to my straight story that came out in around 98, 99 as well. 
And then um, the last feature film he did was Inland Empire, an Inland Empire, which came out around 2006. I think that was like the last film that he did that was a feature film. And I have seen interviews with him where he basically said like a director like him can't get the funding that he needs to make the sort of films that he wants to do anymore in Hollywood. They want him to do it for a really, really low budget, which he tried to do within the empire. And he didn't feel like he was able to make the movie that he wanted. He said back in the day, he could get 10 to 15 million to do the kind of film where he was able to put into it what he wanted. And even if it wasn't successful, someone would take a risk on it. But he said, that's just not the case anymore, which is kind of the, you know, it's kind of a bummer. And it makes me appreciate a director like David Lynch even more. And it makes me appreciate this sort of time period in which a director like him could make these sort of, you know, against the grain, strange Mm -hmm. films, but still get like a Hollywood budget for it. And he's also done plenty of short films since Inland Empire, since Mulholland Drive, up until just recently in 2017 with the newer episodes of Twin Peaks, which I really enjoyed. It was a totally different vibe than... Um, the first two seasons of uh, Twin Peaks, it kind of fell more in line with Firewalk with me, in my I, opinion. Or, if not, way darker. I still have not seen the new Twin Peaks, but it's on my it's on my watch list. I, I kind of want to see it more now that we've done all this David Lynch. It's watching. worth it. I really I really appreciated it. Well, let's move on to our picks of the week. My pick was the straight story. Yours was Blue Velvet. Yes. What can you tell me about David Lynch's Blue Velvet? Well, Justin, it's a strange, strange world, and David Lynch somehow manages to mine out the curiosities in what appears to be a normal, everyday life. He's a master at creating a mystery. So, while many other films out there rely upon conventional plot twists to keep us guessing that last gotcha in the final few moments, what's beautiful about Lynch's work is that we never really see things coming, or if we do, there's always another curtain to pull back. He forces us to abandon what we know to be the real world and accept the universe set before us. And Blue Velvet offers a sense of security, this all-American lifestyle, white picket fences, the whole package. But when a human ear is found in the middle of a field, like a four-leaf clover and a patch of grass, a dark and seedy underworld of crime, gangs, drugs, and a sexually disturbed, abusive madman are exposed. What I love most about, man, whenever I say what I love most about Blue Velvet right after saying a sexually confused, abusive man, sorry. It's my favorite part. (laughs) The world of Blue Velvet is slowly revealed to us. In essence, the movie begins with two wholesome, perhaps soon-to-be lovebirds just being nosy amateur detectives and trying to figure out where in which this disembodied ear originated. Now, the curiosity has only begun at this point. Kyle MacLachlan, Isabella Rossellini, Laura Dern, the late Dennis Hopper, and Dean Stockwell all star in this neo-noir mystery. Lynch's usage of close-ups, camera angles, colors, dramatic lighting are all so heavy in this film, cut together to craft a world that really doesn't have an exact time. Maybe it's the 80s, maybe it's the 50s, but the obvious choice to not really have a time period in the film helps give us this sense of like this unreal world while while it's also familiar at the same time to make us feel uncomfortable in the normalcy but something is off. Lynch does this a lot in his films. I feel like the most obvious is Mulholland Drive. 
Now, the plot of Blue Velvet examines three starkly different relationships while using themes no stranger to the noir style, like a twisted story, good versus bad, right right and wrong, and some seriously eye-opening voyeurism for good measure. Laura Dern's character of Sandy imparts to McLaughlin's Jeffrey um, some information about the ear, which leads to Rossellini's character, a seemingly eccentric lounge singer named Dorothy. And after breaking into Dorothy's apartment and hiding in her closet, Jeffrey watches this bizarre mommy-daddy-baby role-playing type of rape scene at the hands of Dennis Hopper's Frank character, who also has a pretty bad nitrous, helium, perhaps fictional huffing type of drug addiction too, which is all throughout the movie. The plot is further unraveled as Jeffrey realizes Dorothy is connected to the disembodied ear, but that it belongs to her male partner whom Frank has kidnapped and is now using Dorothy in some sort of sex slavery in which to act out his violent, abusive, and confused sexual fantasies. We certainly don't get any of Frank's backstory, but these scenes are not easy to watch, and I applaud Lynch for even trying to go there into this world of sexual trauma and how that manifests into adulthood. But don't get it twisted. I'm not excusing Frank's behavior. He's a wretched, awful piece of crap person. And serious kudos go to Isabella Rossellini for enduring these scenes too. After we're lured into this dark world where so much is is set to still uncover, Our ground is shaken and our sense of security in a seemingly blissful universe is corrupted. An innocent man is now confronted and thrown into a world of crime and sexual violence and a traumatized Dorothy and all because another innocent caused him to just be curious. Both are mysteries and both involve two potential love interests attempting to solve said mystery. Blue Velvet is straightforward and more reality-based than say erase her head even though there there definitely is some reality um in that universe but not necessarily the uh same dream state that happens in erase her head how david lynch's brain works is fascinating and the more i learn about him i feel like i understand his process like the idea for blue velvet started out with snippets maybe even painting like ideas in his head such as finding an ear in a field and then a man observing a woman in secret which leads to him learning about a murder mystery at some point and then the pieces just kept coming to him and he began to string a narrative between all of these fragmented ideas that he had there is a hefty amount of sexual violence in this film which you might have already guessed um and just by saying that i know that it can immediately put someone off I do not at all feel like it is exploitive or that you get anything out of it other than complete and utter discomfort and sadness, but it could be triggering for some and and is worth noting. Now, Blue Velvet, um, as we mentioned, was Lynch's next film after 1984's Dune. After having such a well-talked-about, off-the-beaten-path movie like Eraserhead and The Elephant Man, Blue Velvet was Lynch's return to a personal story without hefty consideration for the mainstream. And while Mulholland Drive remains at the top of my list of Lynch films, I feel like it owes a lot to Blue Velvet, or at least they ride the same wavelength. And some will think that this movie is a mystery, like me. Some will think it's a horror film. Some will think it's even a strange comedy. 
But like all Lynch films, Blue Velvet creates a dialogue. Some will find it unsettling and unbearable. And while this film is very David Lynch, it stands out as, I think, one of his best films. So please seek it out, if for nothing else, to see how it's inspired so many other films and how he's used it for later films that he did in his career. And and despite some of the rough content, it really is a beautifully crafted film. Yeah, I, it's been a good 15 years since I've seen Blue Velvet, and I've been going through some Lynch films, but I was going to wait till after your pick of the week <laughs> yeah. and then probably get into that movie this week sometime. It's one of my favorite uh, Kyle MacLachlan performances that, and, and Lynch obviously has used him quite a bit, but even I appreciate his character even more in this. I feel like I identify with him in some ways in this movie. Um, but yeah, everybody in this, it's uh, such a wonderfully acted film too. Yeah. I like Kyle MacLachlan's style as an actor. Yeah. He kind of has his own like unique way of putting spins on characters. It's funny how he works so well with David Lynch too. Yeah. They both have like this sort of like just, just a little bit offbeat yeah. way about the, how they do things. Something a little quirky. All right. I would love to hear you talk about the straight story. I really enjoyed this film. So the straight story um, seemingly seems like not a movie that David Lynch would do right away. It's it's a Disney film. It's G-rated. Um, it's also, I think, one of the first films that David Lynch directed in which he did not write or have a role in writing the film. Um, it was written by Mary Sweeney or co-written by Mary Sweeney, who is a longtime collaborator, David Lynch. Uh, she started out as assistant director on Blue Velvet and went on to edit most of his films and produced some of them as well. Um, she co-wrote Straight Stories. She produced it, and she also was the editor. So she had a big involvement in the film, uh, collaborating with David Lynch. So the Straight Story is based on a true story. Alvin Strait, who his brother was was ill, he knew he had to go visit his brother because they had been they had have a long going argument that caused them not to talk for for many many years, and so he wanted to go visit his brother. But Alvin Strait was almost 80 at the time he uh was not in the greatest health and he couldn't drive so he decided to take a John Deere lawnmower which if you've ever seen one of these John Deere riding lawnmowers they definitely don't go very fast at least the one he had didn't and he he pulled a trailer behind him a small trailer that had his food and water and stuff that he needed for the trip and traveled for Roughly, I, I want to say it was like around six weeks to get to his brother's house. And David Lynch was very attracted to this story. And I can understand why, because David Lynch uses a lot of characters who have this. They, they'll do something that seems very illogical, but it makes sense to them. And when you're watching the straight story, it is a very simple story and it really takes its time. But I think there's a purpose to it because the lead character, Alvin, played by Richard Farnsworth, who was... 79 at the time that he did this film he also had bone cancer in his legs when he was filming this and was also very sick himself and which is one of the reasons why he wanted to do the films because he really admired the tenacity of of the real character Alvin Strait so he couldn't move very fast he would get paralysis in his legs at times and walked with a cane and so when they filmed they had to film him walking at his own pace so, but I think it really lends to the story. You really sort of have to slow down and appreciate 
the way Alvin sees the world and he's not in a hurry to get anywhere, it can be a little bit aggravating uh, because he is so stubborn and he, he openly admits it. You know, he was like, you're talking to a stubborn man. People along the way are like, we could just drive you there in my car. It'll take, <laughs> you know, why are you doing this? This is so dangerous, but it's something that he has to prove to himself. And I think that watching it as an older person, I saw this movie when it first came out and I was probably maybe like 21 or 22. And I, I loved the movie when it came out, but I don't think I really understood the relevance of, of where Alvin Strait was coming from. And, you know, watching this in my 40s, I really see where he's like, you know what, I've had to give up a lot of stuff from old age and, you know, my health is not the same, but this is like one last thing I need to do. I need to be in control of my fate and my situation. So you're kind of pulling for him. You know, at first it's a little bit aggravating. You're like, why would this guy do this? But you do pull for him. And David Lynch... I think was the right director for this movie, you know, because he is willing to take the slow route and follow Alvin. And there's also, he incorporates these little things like Alvin meets these sort of like quirky characters along the way, which is, you know, David Lynch's bread and butter. And there's also a few particular scenes that happen where if like you just saw them isolated without knowing anything else about this movie, you'd be like, this is clearly a David Lynch movie. I mean, specifically a scene where a woman like keeps hitting these deer and she's like confessing this whole story to um, the Alvin Strait character. Uh, there's a couple of really profound scenes too, like just some of the lines that, that he says, I think are, are really um, kind of hit you kind of hard. I really, I don't want to give away the ending to this movie, but uh, this is one that I kind of watched through tears. It's a very emotional ride for me anyway. I think it's really worth seeing. This is one of my favorite David Lynch movies. Very small role by Sissy Spacek, who, like we said in the beginning, um, helped David Lynch early in his career. Um, she's one of my favorite uh, actors, and uh, she does a really good job of playing um, Alvin Strait's uh, daughter, who she can't. she's got a disability and she can't drive him there, so she's kind of been taking care of him, but, and she doesn't quite understand why he wants to leave to do this, but you know, she still supports him in, in his decision. It's a real fascinating character study. And I think it's one that, uh, is, is really worth your time. It's a slow film and it could come off as a little boring. I, I can see, but I do think it's really enjoyable. And it's a, I think it, even though it's, I think, uh, being older, you can relate to him more. I, I can, I consider this a family film as well. Yeah, I would for sure say it could it could pass for um, a quirky, weird David Lynch film, but also a family film, which you normally wouldn't be able to say. I was so captivated by this movie. I, I would agree with you that the first couple minutes, you're like, where is this going? But then you realize the journey, and it becomes so much more about the atmosphere and this guy's journey. It's... um. It's so beautiful. And the music, music just visually, it's gorgeous. And Sissy Spacek, her performance melted my heart. Yeah, I'm so glad you picked this one, and I'm really glad I, I got to watch it. Well, those uh, those are picks of the week. Blue Velvet and The Straight Story, both great films in David Lynch's career. We still have time for one more segment. This is your Murray moment. <laughs> Chicks dig me. 
because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. If there's only one thing we can take away from Eraserhead, it's the anxiety, frustration, and complications that can come from parenthood, family, or relationships, which is all completely understandable. So for this Murray moment, we'll briefly scrape the surface of Billy's rise into fatherhood and his family growing up. If you bite on everything they throw at you, they'll grind you down, Billy said of having kids. You have to ignore a certain amount of stuff. The thing I keep telling them lately is, I have to love you, and I also have the right to ignore you. When my kids ask me what I want for birthday or Christmas or whatever, I say the same answer my father did, peace and quiet, which was never a satisfactory answer for me as a kid. I wanted an answer like a pipe. But now I see the wisdom of it. All I want is you at your best, you making this an easier home to live in, and you thinking of others. And coming from a family of six boys and three girls, yes, that's nine Murray kids, this would be a lot for any parents, especially Ed and Lucille Murray of Wilmette, Illinois. And when Billy was only 17, his father passed away at only 46, which made the family even closer and led to mom Lucille having to get a job at a medical supply plant and Billy going to work at a local pizza parlor to help support the family. If there was only one thing that brought the family closer... It was humor. I'm sure there was a lot more, but I know humor was a big part in Billy's growing up. And no, I don't mean the battling at the dinner table for food or trying to outwit each other and who could be funnier, but it was the moments of humor when it when they truly needed each other is what brought them together. Billy always thought he's got his humor from his father, a very dry but cuttingly funny style. But it wasn't until later in his life that some of Billy's siblings informed him that his sense of humor easily came from his mom, who had more of a antic style of humor. And Billy never realized this. It kind of hit him and was like, oh yeah, she was completely out of control now that I think about it. And as a dad, he said for a long while that he was really a tough laugh. But in more recent years, he's realized there's no point to that and learned to appreciate when his kids are trying to be funny. I think they feel like they have to be funny, that I have some standard of humor that they have to come to. But funny's funny. There's just no denying that. And being from an Irish Catholic family, it always seemed appropriate to me that Billy would end up with a big family of his own. He's got six boys from two marriages. And though both marriages ended in divorce, Billy said he feels like the separation forced him to actually be a better, more present father and have a better relationship with his kids. But as far as that new dad feeling, there's nothing easy about that, no matter how many kids you have. Billy said of becoming a new parent, People only talk about what a joyous experience it is, but there is genuine terror. Your life as you know it is over. It's over the day that child is born. It's just over. But then something new completely starts. When comedian, late night talk show host, and soon-to-be dad at the time Jimmy Kimmel sat down with Billy, 
the already seasoned parent was kind enough to impart some quick tips to the new dad. One, bring an oscillating fan and nightlight to the hospital when your partner's going into labor because the delivery room gets super hot, especially with a, you know, sweat-soaked mom giving birth, and the fluorescent lights are just unpleasant. And two, for getting that new baby to fall asleep, you want to pump their legs and arms to tire them out like they're running, and uh, let them suck on a peppermint, because, you know, peppermint breaks up the gas, Billy said, according, I mean, wisdom according to Billy here, I, I can't confirm or deny this, if that's true. And Billy said it's right around uh, six months when they start experiencing gas. And that comes when they start eating solid food. And six months, Billy said, that's right when you're at the bottom of Fatigue Alley. So watch out for that one. And the more I keep thinking about Billy's family and the environment in which he was raised, it makes sense that he joined his Second City family. He found another family with another clan of like-minded folks And that's when things just clicked professionally for him. For being the independent spirit that many people think of him as, he's always been part of one ensemble or another. Well, it's true. I was born into a group, so I never really knew anything else. And you know, life is lonely. It's hard. So it's good to have a brother or sister around you to validate your feelings, he once said in an interview. And I get it especially when you lay out all the aspects of his life in front of you. You see where he came from and what led him to having a family. I have children that I'm responsible for, and I enjoy that very much. And that wouldn't have happened without women. Adding to this sentiment, Billy said, I don't know very much, but I talk a lot about what I do know. So that's just a little bit on Billy's uh, wisdom in being a father. There's more on his dad, too, but, um, you know, just a little bit, a little, little tidbit there. I like that you tied in, I like that you tied in the, the, the child raising the racer head. It was a good, it was a good way to make it, make it fit. He, he probably, he probably could have helped out in a racer head, you know, maybe. Could have helped Henry out a little bit. Probably could have. Maybe all that little donkey baby, all yeah. that thing was, if he just would have pumped the legs a little bit, if it just wouldn't fed, have been... Fed it a peppermint. Yeah. yeah. Wouldn't have been wrapped up in gauze to hold it together. Spoiler alert. Well, thanks for that Murray moment. <laughs> of course. So we're getting close to wrapping things up here. Um, just uh, do we have any final thoughts on Eraserhead before we totally close it out? I think we had one, the collective we. And we we talked about something. We took a poll between the two of us, <laughs> and this is what we came to. <laughs> Um, I think I voted for this one. Yeah, I know okay. I voted for this one. For both being animal people, it's interesting um, that the the baby in a racer head is not really human, right? Or it doesn't seem to be in doesn't the movie. Seem to be human? I mean, yeah. it could be maybe. It looks to me like a like a donkey. Looks to me like a like a baby dinosaur. Baby dinosaur. But but I think like the consensus between the two of us is <laughs> is when it's crying and the way it looks and the way its eyes are, it that you almost feel. I think like if they just used a regular baby that was crying, mm-hmm. it I wouldn't feel as compassionate for it, it as I do that it's yeah. just like sort of weird little animal baby. It would not have garnered as much empathy if it was a baby. And I don't know if that was like a purposeful thing that David Lynch did. And David Lynch also has like never revealed what they actually used for the baby. And I mean, for a movie that like had like zero budget for special effects, 
I don't know. It's like I almost I don't want to know what they use yeah. that by like. I mean, because I've, I've heard some pretty weird interviews with David Lynch talking about like dissecting cats. I feel confident that I don't think he went out and like murdered any like animal or anything. Yeah. It would not be surprising to me if that was a carcass of some kind yeah. that he was animating with but, by ways of puppetry or yeah. something. But um, but it, it it's a very effective looking creature. It really is, and I and whether or not it was intentional on David Lynch's part. I think it was a smart choice to to make it not a very familiar um, human looking child. Yeah, because I, I really does evoke and man. There there's some moments of pain with that baby that I feel genuine. Say I'm never uh, I, I never am grossed out or like oh I can't believe that Henry's got to deal with this freakish baby or yeah, something. Yeah, but that scene where it's, it's the baby's like he's unwrapping the bandages oh, is one of the I harder scenes. I from, it's it's a tough scene. It's a brutal scene, but I think for re- good reason. Yeah. Well, let's cl- let's stop it there. Okay. On that. On that. Uh, what do we have coming up next episode? The next episode, we're going for a good old Tom Hanks favorite called the Burbs. Ooh. That's a this is a timeless classic for yeah. you, right? I, I've been waiting a year and a half for us to do a Joe Dante movie. So how many times uh, have you screened this in your backyard? So we do this every single year. We just came up on our fifth year, um, and we do it around the Fourth of July. It's like a vacation type because since he's going on vacation, the movie. Sure. Uh, we've done it five consecutive years in a row. And uh, every year we have a newcomer who's never seen the Burbs, but we have a lot of diehards that come. <laughs> uh, we serve uh, sardines and pretzels and uh, brownies in tribute to the Burbs. An um, eclectic palette there. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I can't wait to get in this. Uh, this is just one of the most fun times I have watching a movie. I can't wait to talk about it. So a lot, a lot of fun stuff coming up. If you have been following us this whole time we can't thank you enough if you're new to us welcome we're very active on social media instagram facebook twitter um you can go directly to our website don'tpushpausepodcast.com drop us an email let us know you're listening yeah let us know and if you if you feel if you like what you hear and you're on itunes you know feel free to give us a five-star rating if you're into it if you are into downloading versus streaming please download it helps us track how many uh you know listeners we have and and what our potential growth is um but yeah again as always can't thank you enough till next time i'm justin johnson and i'm Lindsay reaper thanks for listening thank you